Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two. Testing, testing, testing. Hey, good evening, everybody. Turn to the person next to you and say welcome. We are glad you are here. Okay, real quick, before we get started, a couple things. Tonight's going to be really, 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 really good. They are going to pass you out some white cards. On these cards, we're asking you to help us for tomorrow night. We're asking you to help us for tomorrow night. Yeah, would you guys move over there real quick, a little closer? We're going to utilize this screen over here. Do you want to move your podium over there, sir, at all, or do you? Okay, all right. He's probably not even going to use the podium there. So we're going to utilize this screen right here tonight. We're passing out white cards to you. What do you do with those white cards? Any question that you want to have answered tomorrow night, you write down on that white card. Okay? Unless you're Raymond, Raymond, you can doodle on your white card. Okay? Any question that you may want answered, put on that white card. We're going to have you pass that in at the end of our teaching time today. Okay? We're going to have you pass that in. So everybody know what to do with the white cards? Anybody not know what to do with the white card? Anybody not know what to do with the white card? Okay. All right. Good. I'm excited about tonight's message because we do a lot of things as far as with drilling and the economic prosperity within Oklahoma and we want to know what's in the ground. Don't you want to know what's in the ground? Don't you want to know what's underneath the, the surface of the earth? Yeah, some people want to know. Okay, I'm going to turn it over. Grady McMurtry is here. Let's give him a warm welcome. We're going to turn it over to Grady tonight. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, good evening. Oh, come on, guys. We practiced this twice yesterday, all right? <laughs> come on. It was another beautiful day out there today. It really was, right? So let's, let's, let's let the Lord know. Good evening. Good evening. A little better. Now, I know, all of you over there, you're going to get a crick in your neck looking to the right, but you're going to want to look to the right. Right? Come on, right? Right. Always to the right. Never to the left, always to the right. <laughs> well, as promised, tonight we're going to be taking a look at this. What is really in the ground versus what is in the textbooks? Now, I want to talk with you for a moment about evolution. Evolution is not a new idea. Evolution did not come along as a theory 200 years ago. 150 years ago. It didn't start with Charles Darwin. There were many, many evolutions before Charles Darwin even thought about being one. The fact of the matter is that evolution is an ancient, ancient philosophy. As a matter of fact, if you think about it philosophically, you can take the theories, and remember there's not one theory, there are many different theories of evolution, trace them philosophically back to the Garden of Eden. As I spoke about yesterday morning, there are actually three chapters of the New Testament. Romans 1, Acts 17, I went over that yesterday morning, but also 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter and Paul are talking about the scientific conflict between creation and evolution 2,000 years ago because the early church was having to deal with creation versus evolution scientifically 2,000 years ago. But if you think about it, why? Well, before Christ was born, Greek, Roman evolutionists were teaching about the theories of evolution, but I said philosophically, you can trace evolutionary theory all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So think with me for a minute. If we go to the book of Judges, 
Now, the book of Judges was written 3,000 to 3,400 years ago, the period between Joshua and King Saul. And in the book of Judges, chapter 17, chapter 21, what does it say? It says this, when they had no one to rule over them, each man, each woman did what was right in their own eyes or sight, correct? Now, what is doing right in your own eyes or sight? It is saying there is no lawgiver, there is no God, that we can each decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Well, that's an evolutionary philosophical position. And so we see this evolutionary philosophical position 3,000, 3,400 years ago, correct? But what about, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. What was the first lie, the first deception of Satan? Was it not, hath God said? Oh, you can't really trust him. He's not the creator. He's lying to you. He's just holding out on you. He just knows if you knew what he knew, then you would be just like him. That's an evolutionary philosophical position. And so the very first deception of Satan in the garden was, in fact, evolution. Evolution is the oldest tool in Satan's tool chest, you might say. And so philosophically, you can trace evolutionary theory all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But I want to start with the ancient evolutionists, as I'm going to call them, going back to the Greek and Roman evolutionists. Just to give you an idea, for example, Thales. Now, notice that 2,600 years ago, he was a naturalistic evolutionist who taught that life originated in the water. Well, isn't that what evolutionists teach today? Now, dear, I told you, you'd have to get up and come over here if you want to see the screen. I told both of you that. I did. You know, I quote the Bible. One word to the wise is sufficient. And I would also quote the Bible, with gray hair comes wisdom. So, anytime you want to move, feel free. <laughs> but, let's take a look at Anaximander. Now, Anaximander, he's living 2,500 years ago, 500 years before Christ, and he taught, and I quote, humans originally resembled another kind of animal, namely fish. Remember I said yesterday, too, that evolutionists have taught that fish walked out of the water and became people 2,500 years ago. Is that correct? Or here's another one, Xenophes. Now, he was the first person who, and I quote, he was known to have explicitly recognized fossils as memorials of geological change and the succession of life, meaning that fossils and the study of fossils is not new. Now, they didn't really realize what fossils were all about the way we do today or the way we did 200 years ago, but he recognized fossils, and he said these were creatures that had lived in the past and supposedly had evolved into what we have today. He at least understood that from his perspective. Then we have Heraclius. Now, notice again, he's the apostle of change. That's what he's actually called, the apostle of change. And he taught that matter is constantly changing and thus life was constantly changing. You know, the evolution says, well, we see change all around us all the time, and they try to convince you that that's equal to evolution. Well, there is a definition of the word evolution, which means change over time. And for instance, I was here three years ago. I can say that the city has evolved since I was here because that's the proper use of the word. Some buildings have been built. Some buildings have been torn down. It has changed over time, correct? And think with me. Evolutionists will say, well, we see babies turn into adults. We see change over time. Is that correct? And they will try to convince you. They try to deceive you into believing that that's equivalent to a proof for evolution of one kind into another. But if you'll stop and think about it, you realize it's not true at all. 
what happens when we see a baby become an adult? Yes, that is change over time, I agree, in appearance, right? But in fact, it is the exact same genetic information being expressed differently at different times. But that's not change of organism from one kind to another. That's just a change in appearance. It's the same genetics seen it expressed differently at different times during our lives. Number five on my hip right here, Empedocles. Now, he's even called the father of evolutionary naturalism. But he's living 2,400 years ago. And he wrote, and he said that, and I quote, chance, quote, was responsible for the entire process, unquote, of the evolution of matter into humans. He concluded that spontaneous generation, natural selection, and survival of fittest fully explain the origin of life, that all organisms is evolved by the trial and error recombination of animal parts. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is an ancient form of evolutionary thought. Uh, for example, these Greeks that followed his teaching believed that what happened was that there were arms and legs and heads and torsos that were bouncing around and fortuitously bounced together and stuck. Hello? But he's the father of evolutionary naturalism. It didn't start with Charles Darwin. It didn't start with the more modern-day evolutionists at all. And Democritus. Now, again, he's writing almost 2,400 years ago, and he says he thought that primitive people began to speak with, quote, confused, unquote, and, quote, unintelligible, unquote, sounds, but, quote, gradually they articulated words, unquote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't that sound a little bit like a corrupted verbal history of the Tower of Babel experience? Hello? That's all this is. That is simply a memory of the Tower of Babel experience, a corrupted history which he picked up and then wrote about. Is that correct? Oh. And number seven, Plato. Now, I know many of you have heard the name Plato. Now, he's living again roughly 2,400 years ago, and he taught that there was 200 million years between the flood of the earth and his time. Now, isn't that interesting? He re recognized the reality of a worldwide flood, right? But he invented 200 million years between that time and his own. And so teaching on millions and billions of years is nothing new. Evolutionists have been doing this for a very long time. Is that correct? But I think it's particularly important to remember, he understood that there had been a complete total flood of the entire earth, right? But he just invented evolutionary time in between. And then, number eight on my hit parade here, Aristotle. Again, that name many of you might be familiar with. Now, Aristotle is living 2,300 years ago, and he was a theistic evolutionist. So what does the word theistic evolutionist mean? Well, he understood that there was a creator god of some sort. He didn't know God from a hot rock, but he knew there was one. Um, and he believed that that god had used evolution to create the things that we see today. This is a position taken by many people around the world. And he taught that humans were the highest point of one long, continuous, and I quote, ascent with modification, unquote, and that all life was linked by some evolutionary process. Well, think with me, ascent with modification. That is basically what Charles Darwin taught, although he used the term descent with modification. But ultimately, we see that uh, Aristotle believed in an evolutionary process. And... Epicurus. Now, I spoke about him yesterday morning. I mentioned he is mentioned in Acts 17, correct? Or his disciples, the Epicureans, the, the descendants of this philosopher. And he taught that there was no God of gods because the universe came about by a chance movement of atoms. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's a man. His name is Dr. Stephen Hawkins. Uh, perhaps you have seen pictures of him on TV or someplace like that. Now, I am not, I am not attacking the man. Uh, he is the longest surviving human being on earth with Lou Gehrig's disease. His body is in terrible condition. I don't mean to make fun of him at all in that sense. I hope you understand that. But recently, he is an atheist, an adamant, ardent atheist, and recently he wrote, and you have to understand, he's a theoretical astrophysicist. Uh, he wrote that no God was necessary because the universe had come about as a fluctuation of virtual particles. Sounds fancy, doesn't it? Yeah, he said no God was necessary because the universe was the result of a quantum fluctuation of virtual particles. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Epicurus said, that the universe was a chance movement of atoms. Greeks understood atomic theory. They didn't know what an atom looked like, but they understood atomic theory over 2,000 years ago. And so Stephen Hawking is just saying the same thing that Epicurus said. He's just saying it in new fancy terminology. But, of course, he's still wrong. <laughs> right? He's just as wrong as Epicurus was. Well, number 10, Pliny the Elder. Now, I talked about him uh, when I was here three years ago during the dinosaur presentation. He was a naturalist or an early form of scientist. But Pliny was a Roman evolutionist. Now, the others were Greek evolutionists, but Pliny is a Roman evolutionist. And he taught, and I quote, we are so subject to chance that chance herself takes the place of God. She proves that God is uncertain. Well, again, evolutionists believe in eternal things. They believe in eternal mass, energy, and time, and they believe in the God of random chance. They believe that random chance can produce complexity over time. Now, if you know anything about science, you know that's absolutely absurd. Random chance will never cause an increase in intelligence or complexity by random chance, period. Random chance always destroys over time. It never builds up. Well, he's a Roman evolutionist. What about the Hindus? Now, Hinduism is the perfect example of evolutionary philosophy applied to religion. Think with me for about this for just a second. Hindus, they believe in an eternal universe, an infinite eternal universe, with, with cycles of rebirth, destruction, dormancy, and so forth. They believe in reincarnation, correct? Right? And I want to share with you two quotations attributed to two different Hindu gods. The first quote comes attributed to the god Krishna. I'm sure many of you will remember the Beatles song about Harry Krishna. Maybe you've been accosted by them at the airport sometime or another. Uh, but this supposed god in the Hindu religion said, and I quote, I am the source from which all creatures evolved, unquote. That's what this Hindu god is supposed to have said. There's another Hindu god, uh, Ishvara, and according to the writings of the Hindus, Ishvara said, and I quote, never was there a time when I, Ishvara, did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings, nor in the future shall any of us cease to be. Evolution applied to religion. Hinduism is the perfect example. Think with me. In Hinduism, you start off as a roach. Now, if you're a really good roach, when you die, you get to come back as a mouse. But if you're really good at being a mouse, you get to come back as a rat. And when you die, then you get to come back as the cat, then the dog, and eventually you work your way up to being a cow. Now, if you're really good at being a cow, you get to come back the next time as a really bad person. But if you're really good at being a bad person, you get to come back as a mediocre person. 
Now, if you're really good at being a mediocre person, then when you die, you get to come back as a really good person, and supposedly you evolve your way to heaven. What is the problem? The problem is nobody ever makes it. Because somewhere along the line, we all mess up, but what's the worst thing that can happen? You have to go back and start over as a roach. I'm serious. This is Hinduism, folks. But think with me. Hinduism is a religion without consequences because the worst thing that can happen is you have to go back and start over again, correct? And so there's no ultimate consequences. And you can go around as many times as it takes, correct? But in Christianity, we're told that you are, well, you only have one shot, right? You can decide in this lifetime where you're going to spend eternity, but you're only going to go around once, and then there are consequences, correct? Correct. But Hinduism is the perfect example of evolution applied to religion. And Hindus believe in an eternal universe of constant rebirth and death and so forth, but no ultimate consequences. And if you think about it, evolution is a religion that is the same way. In evolution, if it ain't convenient, it don't fit my religion. I mean, that's what an evolution says, right? Oh. And so evolution says you can do anything you want in this lifetime because there's no consequences. And when you die, you're just going to cease to exist. You're, you're nothing but a thinking animal. There's no right, no wrong, etc. Well, Hinduism is the perfect example of evolutionary philosophy applied to religion. And then, of course, what about the Babylonians? Now, the Babylonians claim to have astronomical inscriptions on clay tablets going back 730,000 years. Now, if you read the Bible or you read any good history, you will know the Babylonian Empire only lasted four kings. Hello? <laughs> I mean, you know, seriously. Now, how can they possibly, what, you know, this is preposterous that they've got inscriptions for 730,000 years. I mean, you know, but, but why did they claim that? Well, it's really simple. Think with me. If you want to believe and promote the idea that your culture is superior to your neighbor's culture, Right? What do you do? You invent a longer history. And you say, our culture is more ancient than your culture. So our culture is superior to your culture. Is that right? So they just invented 730,000 years. It's really what's called in the English language, not, not in American, but in English language, it's, it's called brinksmanship. You all know the difference between English and American? Hello? The, the, the great Sir Winston Churchill had this great quote. I, I love Winston Churchill quotes. I really do. He was a great Cambridgean and so forth. Winston Churchill was in the United States after World War II, and he was no longer prime minister in England, and he was on a speaking tour. And one time he said this, that, uh, that the English and the American, we were two people separated by a common language. I loved it. <laughs> well, the word brinksmanship is the same thing as one-upsmanship, Okay. Okay, some of you still haven't quite got the idea. Look, this is equal to saying, my daddy can beat your daddy. Now we got it? Okay. So inventing 730,000 years of supposed history is just a way of saying, my daddy's better than your daddy, right? I mean, really? And the same thing is true of the Egyptians, because they claim to have, again, knowledge of astronomy for 100,000 years. And I would point out to you, that comes from St. Augustine of Hippo, a Christian bishop of 1,600 years ago, and he knew the Egyptians quite well. But again, we also know that the Egyptian empire only lasted 4,200 years. You know, it's impossible that they had a 100,000-year history, correct? They just made it up, right? 
But again, this is to get stature, right? We have an ancient civilization. Well, these are the ancient evolutionists. Just to point out to you that evolution is not something new. It didn't come along with Charles Darwin. But let's talk about the more modern-day evolutionists. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a biblical scientific creationist. That means somebody who believes 100% from the Bible and 100% from science that creation is true occurred in six literal 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago, correct? And we are not new either. As a matter of fact, yesterday morning I was pointing out Paul was the first creation evangelist, correct? But modern-day creation scientists like myself, we trace our history back 400 years. We trace our, our way back to the time of the Elizabethan scientist, Sir Francis Bacon, followed in the 1600s by men like Sir Isaac Newton. And into the 1800s, we have Faraday, Maxwell, uh, well, Louis Pasteur. And even into the 1900s, we would include George Washington Carver. There have been Christian, creation-believing scientists in modern times the last 400 years. I would point out to you, the single greatest scientists the world has ever known in the last 400 years were to a person, Christians and creation believers. They all believed in the young earth. The single greatest scientific discoveries, the single founders of entire scientific disciplines have to a person been creation, believing scientists and Christians. But let's take a look at the more modern evolutionists because, again, it doesn't start with Charles Darwin. Modern evolutionary thinking actually traces back 300 years to six French atheists. Now, the first one on our hit parade... Uh, He's called Montesquieu, uh, but he wrote, and I quote, In the beginning, there were very few kinds of species, and they have multiplied since. Well, that's an evolutionary concept, right? Right? That's 300 years ago. Uh, He's writing in the early 1700s. The second on our hit parade, known as de Molay, well, he, he was published in 1748. Now, in case any of you are reading the fine print on that, Uh, He died 10 years earlier, but his work was posthumously printed in 1748. So the numbers are correct. But in 1748, he was published, and he wrote that, well, notice, fish were the forefathers of birds, mammals, and men, and the earth was up to 2 billion years old. Now, think with me. That was published 111 years before Charles Darwin published Origin of the Species. Again, Isn't this the concept we read about earlier? Fish walked out of the water and became people, correct? And this is 111 years before Charles Darwin published, and he's already talking about the Earth being 2 billion years old, correct? So again, we're talking about evolutionary time. We're talking about evolutionary concepts, and this is 250 years ago, correct? And now you'll notice, again, this is 1751, writing that new species may result from the fortuitous recombining of different parts of living things. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that what a Greek philosopher said 2,400 years ago? Wasn't that pieces were bouncing around and stuck together thing? Oh. Number four on our hip rate of French atheists, Diderot. Now, he's writing in the mid-1700s, and he wrote that all animals came from one primeval animal and that this prototype was fashioned by nature, meaning natural selection, into all those types of animals alive today. Clearly, this is an evolutionary thought process, correct? And again, he's writing 250 years ago. Number five, well, now, this gentleman has an extremely long name. The French were really big on really long names. We just call him Buffon. 
But in 1778, he wrote, and I quote, the ape and man had a common ancestry, unquote, and he wrote that the earth was 74,832 years old exactly. You know, I like a guy, a gal that's really precise, don't you? Really, it's specific, and I really do like that. Now, think with me. Today, no evolutionist and no creationist would accept that date. I mean, you know, that's absurd, right? Either you believe it's 6,000 years old or you believe it's 4.5 billion, but nobody believes it's 75,000, correct? Right? And would you like to see how he got that date? Would you like to see how he got that date? 74,832 years old? Exactly. Well, just watch me for a second. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is actually how he did it. Yeah, I just pulled it right out of thin air. Hello? Well, number six of our six French atheists of the 1700s, we have a man, again, with an incredibly long name, but known in literature normally as just Lamarck. And uh, in 1801, he promoted the evolution by the inheritance of acquired traits, and he wrote, and I quote, time and favorable conditions are the two principal means which nature has employed to give ex given existence to all her productions, we know that for her time has no limit and that consequently she always has it at her disposal. Ladies and gentlemen, remember evolutionists believe in eternal mass, energy, and time and the God of random chance. And so he says eternal time and random chance will get us where we are today, correct? Now, first of all, this promotion of the evolution by the inheritance of acquired traits. Let me explain what that means. By the way, it was disproved. It was actually disproved uh, before he died. Uh, but Charles Darwin actually believed it. Charles Darwin was actually a Lamarckian evolutionist. Now, Lamarck taught this, the inheritance of acquired traits. What that means is this. How many of us are familiar with the uh, ex-governator of California? Come on, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Right? Now, at one time, we will not say how... But at one time, we will agree, he was a world-class bodybuilder. I'm not going to say how he did it, but he was, right? Mr. Universe at one time, right? And Lamarck taught that if Arnold Schwarzenegger had those big muscles, which he did, if he were to have a son, his son would also have big muscles. The inheritance of acquired traits. Are you with me? So if Arnold Schwarzenegger had those big muscles, his son would also inherit those big muscles, right? Now, we know that's not true. Any of you know it's not true. Uh, but it was actually disproven in his own lifetime. But Charles Darwin continued to believe what Lamarck taught, and he was, in fact, actually a Lamarckian evolutionist. Um, we all know if Arnold Schwarzenegger had a son, unless he pumped just as much iron or more than Arnold Schwarzenegger, he would never have the same size muscles, correct? And this whole idea of the inheritance of acquired traits was actually disproven in Lamarck's lifetime before he died. It was a very simple experiment. What they did was they took adult rats and they cut off the tail. And when they had baby rats, the baby rats still had tails. So they cut off the tails of the baby rats. And when they grew up to be adults and they had baby rats, their baby rats still had tails. And they kept cutting the tails off for a few generations and found out you could cut the tails off as long as you want. They would always still have tails, correct? Because you and I know it's genetics, right? <laughs> And so the idea of the inheritance of acquired traits was disproven even in his own lifetime by a very simple little but cruel experiment. Uh, <laughs> now, think with me. 
these six French atheists of the 1700s, they, their influence, their ideas influenced two Scotsmen. So the ideas of these French atheists jumped the English Channel to Scotland and influenced two Scotsmen, for which I apologize. Well, remember, my last name is McMurtry. Hello? Okay. So these six French atheists influenced these two Scotsmen, for which I do apologize, right? Now, the first Scotsman we're going to talk about, his name is James Hutton. Now, in 1795, shortly before he died, he published two volumes of a book. The title is Theory of the Earth, Volumes 1 and 2. And in his books, he proposed that the earth had, and I quote, no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end, unquote. Hutton believed in eternal time. No beginning, no end. You with me? Now, his writings are rather obscure. His writings are very difficult to read because he used a very poor form of, uh, it was elaborate, but poor form of grammar. Um, But he was terribly, terribly influential when it came to evolutionists at the end of the 1700s. And again, the French atheists had also influenced another Scotsman. His name was Charles Lyell. Now, Charles Lyell, uh, in 1830 to 1837, he published four volumes of a book called Principles of Geology, volumes 1, 2, 3, 4. And he successfully promoted the doctrine of uniformitarianism, although he didn't invent the idea. The fact of the matter is that another man had actually invented the word, the terminology, but Lyell was the one who was successful in promoting this idea. Now, if you're not familiar with what the word uniformitarianism means, hang on, I'll define it for you in just a minute, okay? All right, I will. It's, it's not difficult, I will. Um, now, these two Scotsmen, Hutton and Lyell, as a matter of fact, Charles Lyell actually became the mentor of Charles Darwin. But... The ideas of these two Scotsmen went south of the border into England and influenced, well, three Englishmen, all of which are named Darwin. The first is Dr. Erasmus Darwin. Now, he is the grandfather of Charles Darwin. He wrote extensively on evolution. Charles Darwin got many of his ideas on evolution from his grandfather Erasmus, although they never met. His grandfather died before Charles was born. But since this was the writings of his grandfather, of course, he grew up with them, he read them, and so forth, and his grandfather had tremendous influence on Darwin in his acceptance of evolution. But Erasmus Darwin wrote various books at the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s, promoting the concepts of evolution. Now, he was an M.D., okay, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, M.D. And, of course, the second Darwin was Dr. Robert Darwin, the father of Charles, also M.D., who would, in fact, promote his father's ideas, that of Erasmus, and would teach them to his son, Charles. Now, I think you kind of see a thread here, don't you? Come on, we can see this historic thread of the French atheist to the Scottish atheist to the English atheist, correct? Well, now, I want to point out to you, in the 1700s, the French had become atheists. But in the 1700s, the English had not yet become atheists. The first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica was published between 1768 and 1771. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the British Encyclopedia Britannica at some point in time, and you'll agree it's supposed to be one of the world's greatest com- you know, compilations of knowledge, correct? Now, 
notice that in the first edition of the British Encyclopedia Britannica, on page 493 in the section under astronomy, it gave a table of world events, including the creation of the Earth in the year zero. However, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, that was the year 4007 BC. And it also talked about a worldwide deluge of the Earth, we would call it Noah's Flood, occurring in 2351 BC. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I might disagree with those dates five years one way or the other, but that's irrelevant, isn't it? The fact of the matter is the British had not yet given up on God. They had not yet given up on biblical authority. And for good scientific reasons, they were still believing the Earth was young. You have to remember that, again, Sir Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, they all believed the Earth was only 6,000 years old or so in their time. And I admit that biblical authority was involved. But... Think with me for a second. They also thought it was good science. So I agree there was biblical authority involved, but they also thought it was good science. Now, let's take a little look at James Hutton for just a second. Now, again, I apologize. He was Scottish. Now, but he wrote these two very influential books on geology, correct? But he was not a geologist. He was a farmer. You see, he came from not a wealthy family, but a relatively well-to-do family. I mean, they had money, not great money, but they had money. And what happened? He went away to medical school in Scotland, and he actually did earn an MD. But when he got out of college, he never practiced medicine. Not once. After he got out of school, he never practiced medicine again. And eventually he would go home to the family estate, and eventually he would become a gentleman farmer. So he was not a scientist. He was not a geologist. He was a farmer with an MD degree. But he wrote these two terribly influential books called Theory of the Earth, Volumes 1 and 2, and published in 1795. Now, I'd like you to think about what was going on at that time in world history. What's going on at the time that James Hutton writes and publishes his two books in 1795? Well, think with me. It is the age of revolutions. It is the age of anti monarchy. Think with me. Starting with the American Revolution of 1776, we will be followed by the French, Spanish, Polish, Italian, and German revolutions. Why? Well, it's really very simple. And I want you to also think about the very distinct difference between the American Revolution and all the revolutions that occurred following it, okay? What was the main distinguishing characteristic that differentiated the American Revolution from all the others? It is really quite simple. We never once attempted to kill the King of England. We never once attempted to kill the King of England. We were simply two Christian people with differences. We had differences over taxation, property rights, representation. But we never once attempted to kill the English king. We were just two Christian people that had differences, correct? But think about every other revolution that occurred after that, starting with the French Revolution, one of the bloodiest revolutions the world has ever known, even killing its own leaders. What's the difference? Well, think with me. For 2,000 years in Europe, kings and queens had held authority because it was given to them by God. The kings and queens were God's authority on earth, that they had the God-given right of being kings and queens. Is that correct? But think with me, if evolution is true, there is no God. If there is no God, there's no God-given authority. And that means there's no need for kings or queens because people become the measure of themselves. Is that correct? 
And so what happened? When they decided there was no God, there was no God-given authority, they went out and they killed their kings and queens. Hello? Oh. And this is a page from a uh, science textbook used in America's public schools, supposedly teaching something about the history of science. Now, you will notice it says on this page, before radiometric dating was available. Now, I'm going to talk about two words, their definition on this page. The first one is this big old word, radiometric. I actually taught about it three years ago, but you might not have been here. And uh, if you're not, you know, you weren't here, you've forgotten. What does this word radiometric mean? Well, it is the supposed use of the decay of radioactive materials to supposedly measure the amount of time since a creature lived or an event occurred. So the word radiometric is the supposed use of the decay of radioactive materials to supposedly measure the amount of time since a creature lived or an event occurred. And all of you have heard of carbon-14. Now, carbon-14 doesn't work. None of these things, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, I talked about it when I was here last time. We have got lots of materials on that over the table. They simply don't work because they all start with six fatal false assumptions. Carbon-14 has 21. Now, if you start with six or 21 fatal false assumptions, you can't possibly get a reliable date, correct? And so if they teach you in school that carbon-14 works, just look at them and laugh hysterically. Come on, practice. That's a little better. The only thing, the only thing carbon-14 is good for is proving that the Earth is young. Think with me. It breaks down very quickly. It has a half-life of 5,730 years. It goes to zero in only 250,000 years. That's theoretical. And so let's think about this. When somebody says, well, you know they've, di you know, they've dated dinosaur fossils as being 68 million years old using carbon-14, you should look them in the eye and laugh hysterically. It just proves they don't know what they're talking about, right? If it goes to zero in only 250,000 years, you can't use it to measure millions, correct? But what is carbon-14 good for? The only thing that carbon-14 is good for is proving the Earth is young. The most sensitive scientific instrument on Earth today cannot measure the level of carbon-14 in a deposit beyond 17 and a half half-lives. What that means is, even if you had all these years, you could not measure beyond 103,000 years. We have no instrument that can measure carbon-14 beyond 103,000 years. But here's the kicker. After all, those of you that are still awake, uh, <laughs> that's okay, I understand. Uh, th think with me for a second, though. We cannot find a coal deposit. We cannot find an oil deposit. We cannot find a natural gas deposit in the world that does not have significant, measurable carbon-14 in it. Now, evolutionists talk about the coal, for instance, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, being 300 to 360 million supposed years old, but we can still find measurable, significant carbon-14 which proves it's not 300 to 360 million. It has to be less than 100,000, but totally consistent with, well, not only an Earth of 6,000 years old, but a worldwide flood of 4,500 years ago. Same thing is true of oil. Same thing is true of natural gas, carbonaceous clays. We cannot find a carbon deposit on Earth that does not have significant measurable carbon-14, proving that the entire thing is young and predominantly oil, gas, coal, 
are the result of Noah's flood. But notice what it says here. Again, this is from a textbook used in the United States, teaching supposedly about the history of, of science. Before radiometric dating was available, many people had estimated the age of the Earth to be only a few thousand years old. Now, again, what is it saying? Before these techniques were even available, and they don't work, people had talked about the Earth being only thousands of years old. Now, again, I agree, part of this was biblical authority, but it was also often good science, too, right? But notice what it goes on to say here. It says, but in the 1700s. Well, no, actually, it was exactly 1795. Then says Scottish scientist, James Hutton, but he wasn't a scientist, he was a farmer. Estimate the Earth was much older. He used the principle of uniformitarianism. Now, this is where I want to define the word for you. Now, the textbook gives what I will call a lousy definition. Okay, The textbook says uniformitarianism. This principle states that earth processes occurring today are similar to those that occurred in the past. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, I would call that a lousy definition. I really would. Now, one of the nice things about, uh, by the way, Pastor, can I, uh, just someplace where I can lay this down. I guess I'll pull this over here now. I should have done it earlier. Uh, you get one end, I'll get the other. Thank you. It's hard to hold three things at the same time, you know. Now, this word uniformitarianism, now in the English language, we have prefixes and suffixes which help us to understand what a word means even if we've never seen it before, correct? You know, sometimes you can just figure it out, right? So let's break down this word uniformitarianism and let's figure out what does it mean. Well, first of all, you know an ism is a belief system, correct? And the Aryan, that's the person who believes it, correct? So what does this word uniformitarianism mean? It means any man or woman who believes that all the natural laws, all the natural processes that exist today have acted uniformly throughout eternal time and that only random chance working through these uniform laws and processes have brought about all the complexity that we see today. So I'll define it again. Uniformitarianism. It's a man or a woman who believes that all the natural laws all the natural processes that exist today have acted uniformly throughout an eternal past and that only random chance working through these uniform processes over eternal past have brought about all the complexity that we see today. I hope that's a much better, better understood definition. Are you with me? Now, what does it then also say? Please notice, he inferred, he hypothesized. Is that correct? But tell me something. Did he prove anything? No. He hypothesized. He inferred. But he didn't prove a thing. Is that right? And now let's continue to take a look at the bottom of the page. Because down here you notice it says this. English geologist Sir Charles Lyell is given the most credit for advancing the concept of uniformitarianism. Now, first of all, he wasn't English. He was Scottish. Secondly, he was not a geologist. He was a lawyer. He went to the university and became a lawyer, but he is responsible for these books, which are incredibly influential for evolutionists. As a matter of fact, his books are today still the foundational books of evolutionary geology today. That is how influential he is in his books. So let's take a look at Sir Charles Lyell for just a moment, okay? Now, here's a drawing of him and so forth. 
and he was a Scottish lawyer. But he put out these books called Principles of Geology, Volumes 1, 2, 3, 4. Now, these are the books that influenced Charles Darwin, who was already an evolutionist, to become an adamant evolutionist. Okay, So he already believed in evolution, but having read these books, he became an ardent evolutionist the rest of his life. And again, you would think, well, Erasmus and Robert, his father, grandfather, but remember his grandfather was already dead, right? Uh, would have been the major influence on Charles, but actually it is this man who became the mentor to Charles Darwin the rest of his life. And that's how important this man is. Now, let's think. Now, today, in most public schools, uh, our students, our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are being taught the Earth is four and a half to five billion supposed years old, but most places they teach it's 4.6 billion. Now, you're going to find out evolutionists love 0.6, and this is why. It makes it sound like they measured it. Come on, folks, 4.5, 5.0 would be just too convenient, right? Just too easy. But if we say it's 4.6, it makes it sound like they measured it, right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, this means that according to evolutionists, the Earth has been getting older at the rate of about 18 million years per year for the last 264 years, or about 34 years a minute. Hello? Do you think maybe there's a better explanation, like maybe they just don't know what they're talking about? Could that maybe be the case? No. By the way, I've noticed some of you photographing the slides. Uh, we have this already in the back recorded for you. You don't have to take grainy pictures. You can have good ones. If you want uh, now, if you've ever had any teaching on evolution at all, you've seen something in a textbook that looks something like this. It's called the geologic time scale or the geologic time column, correct? And you've seen things in books similar to this. Uh, on one side of the page will be these various layers in the ground with their various scientific names, and, and next to the layers going back in time. I mean, the idea is you start at the top in the present. As you go down through the layers, they get older and older. And uh, next to the layers, you see illustrations of creatures that are supposed to have lived at different times in the past. This does look at least familiar, correct? You've all seen something like this, right? Now, I want you to think about something for just a moment. If you start at the top here and go down through all these layers, down to the beginning of the Cambrian, this is supposed to represent 520 to 580 million supposed years, depending upon the evolutionists you ask. And the period before that, called the Precambrian, is supposed to have lasted from one half billion up to a billion and a half years, according to which evolutionists you ask, okay? Now, I'd like you to think about something. How do these layers get their names? How do they get their, their ages and so forth? Well, in the early 1800s, 200 years ago, each layer of rock like Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous, each one of these layers was given a name and an age, so many millions of years old, and an index or key fossil. I, I said earlier, remember carbon-14, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, uranium lead, none of these radioactive methods, these radiometric methods work. And so how do evolutionists actually tell us how old things are? Well, they, they tell us that these layers are so old because of what's called a key or index fossil in the English language. Now, because of my mission work in Russia, I can tell you that in the Russian language, they are called governing fossils. And if you think about it, that's really a better word because supposedly these fossils govern the age of the layers, you see. So they call them in Russia governing fossils, but we call them key or index fossils. And, uh, well, let's think for a second. 
this geologic column, which is the Bible of the evolutionists, can only be found in two places in the entire world, in the textbooks and in the minds of people who believe it. There's not one location on the surface of this earth where you can start, dig straight down, and go through all those layers in that order. When I was here three years ago, I proved that, in fact, there are only 25 locations on the surface of this earth where you can find some of the layers in the order shown in the textbook. There is nowhere in the world where you can find all the layers in the order shown in the textbook. It simply doesn't exist in the ground. It only exists in two places, in the textbook and in the minds of those who believe in evolution. And if you don't believe me, I would like to prove it to you. Please notice, this comes from an American school textbook published by Harcourt Brace. It's on Earth Science Textbook. On page 326, it says, and I quote, if there were a column of sediments, so, you know, if those layers were in the order shown, right? But please notice the next sentence. Unfortunately, no such column exists. Come on, folks, that's right from the textbook, right? If there were a column of sediments, no such column exists. Right there in the textbook, it says you cannot find the layers in the ground in the order in which they show them in the chart. Is that correct? Apparently, you're not persuaded. Well, let me give you another example. Please notice this is page, well, this is, I'll get to it in a second. Uh, before I do that, think with me for a second. If I could find the thickest layer of each of these layers in the fossil record, wouldn't you agree that would represent the longest period of supposed time for each of these layers to accumulate? Is that correct? Come on, folks. If I could find the, the thickest layer of any one of those layers in the chart, anywhere in the world, wherever it existed, it would supposedly represent the longest period of time for accumulation of that layer, right? Because if you, if you found less, you could always say some had eroded away after it was deposited, correct? Right? Okay. Well, here's the problem. If you do take the thickest layer of every one of those layers found in that chart, put them together in one place, it would be 76 miles high. Of course, what's the problem, which is the average thickness of all these layers around the world is only 1.2 miles, which means that there is 74.8 miles missing. I believe the technical term is bummer. Nowhere in the world can you find the column as it is illustrated in the textbook. And, for example, this is a photograph of the south wall of the Grand Canyon of northern Arizona. This was taken at sunrise, okay? Now, this photograph is taken from a few miles away, actually, of course. But here we see the beautiful south wall of the Grand Canyon. And down here you see that little tiny, well, that little stream down there is called the Colorado River, right? Now, think with me for a second. The Grand Canyon... Well, it is one-eighth of a mile to 18 miles across, depending upon where you are. Um, it is 270 miles long. It is, at its deepest point, 1.2 miles deep. Uh, and evolutionists want you to believe that that river cut that canyon. Good. I'm glad you found that humorous. I do, too. Uh, but let's just take a look. First of all, when you, when you see these layers here, first of all, they look very flat, Correct. And you can see many, many layers there, right? Evolutionists want you to believe that from where the river is today to the top, that that represents 500 million years of accumulation over time. That's what they say. But they forget to tell you something when you go there. First of all, there's 160 million years missing. 
Oh, yeah, out of the 500, there's only 340 million supposedly there. Are you with me? Oh, that's a kind of a problem, don't you think? And the, they're not nearly as perfect as it would make you uh, appear here. But, but first of all, you see these layers. Now, remember, every single one of those layers is sedimentary rock. Now, what is sedimentary rock? Well, it comes to the word sediment, correct? And that means that all of these layers are just layers of dried-out mud. Think with me. These are just layers of dried-out mud, sedimentary rock. Now, many of them contain fossils and so forth. But, but, but when you look at these uh, layers, they actually look rather flat. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, they, they, But they're not as flat as you think. There are places where the layers are absolutely just as flat as a tile. I mean, they are just perfectly flat. But there are many places where they actually undulate up and down like this. And there's a place on the North Kaibab. No, that's the other side. This is the south wall. Up on the north side, across the valley, um, there's a place called the North Kaibab Trail. You can hike up and down. There's a place when you can go up about halfway up the trail, and you stop, and you turn, and you look at this wall of rock in front of you. And you step back about two feet. Remember, this is the Grand Canyon. But you only step back two feet. And you look at that rock wall in front of you, and you will actually see an almost round area of sedimentary rock, dried out mud. It is surrounded by a, a donut, a bagel-like shape of different kind of sedimentary rock. And then the, the donut, the bagel, is surrounded by the same kind of sedimentary rock that's in the middle. Hmm. And uh, think with me for a second. When you see all these layers, now think with me. If that is slow and gradual accumulation over, well, 500 million supposed years of time, then wouldn't you have to agree with me that each layer would have been laid down one at a time, correct? So you'd have one layer laid down, then another layer laid down, then later another layer laid down, correct? If that is true, then you would have to believe that floods of roughly equal depth covering 400,000 square miles occurred exactly the same way more than 100 times in a row. Now, does that even seem, seem rational? No, it's simply not. Ra that's because evolution is irrational, unreasonable, illogical, and unscientific. And then... A good scientist always asks two questions. Now, ladies and gentlemen, these two questions are equally applicable to Bible study. So please listen carefully, okay? While I'm teaching this as science, they're equally applicable to Bible study. A good scientist always asks two questions. Number one, what is there? Meaning that when I make a scientific observation, I have to adequately and accurately describe what is present, what is there. The second question is, the more important question is, what is not there? And we learn more by asking the second question than the first. This is absolutely applicable to Bible studies. I could prove it to you with many examples. When you ask yourself what's there and then what's not, you'll learn more. But let's apply the two most important science questions to the Grand Canyon. Ladies and gentlemen, if these layers are supposed to be slow, gradual accumulation over long periods of time, one layer at a time, then you would have to agree that each layer after it was laid down would be exposed for a certain amount of time before the next layer came on top, correct? If that is true, then please tell me why 
are there no soil horizons between the layers? Why are there no V-shaped erosion marks in the layers? Why are there no animal holes in the layers? Why are there no plant holes, root holes in the layers? All of that is missing. But if each layer had been laid down one at a time, exposed for a certain amount of time, some of that rock should have eroded into soil. Is that correct? Rain coming down would etch V-shaped erosion marks into layers. That would then be filled in by the next layer of mud coming in on top and preserved, correct? I would have some animal activity. I would have some plant activity. But all of that is missing. That shows me that all those layers in the Grand Canyon were the result of one really big flood in only one year. And in the Mount St. Helens presentation on Wednesday night, I'm going to point out to you that the Grand Canyon was cut very quickly after the flood of Noah. But that's called a teaser. You have to come back Wednesday night. Now, how do evolutionists tell us how old the rock layers are? Well, again, I mentioned they don't use radiometric dating because any knowledgeable evolutionist knows that potassium argon, rubidium strontium, carbon-14 don't work. So how do they do it? Well, what they do is they tell us how old the layer is by the fossil you find in the layer, and then they tell us how old the fossil is by the layer you found it in. I'll repeat. Just look at me for just a moment. They tell you how old the layer is by the fossil you find in it. Then you tell you how old the fossil is by the layer you found it in. Hello? Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is totally self-serving circular reasoning, which proves absolutely nothing. It proves absolutely nothing. But this is actually how they do it. And if you don't believe me that this is actually how they do it, let me prove it to you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, again, this is a public school textbook on earth science. Please notice page 331. It says, scientists use index, or key fossils, to determine the age of rock layers. So on this page, it says, index fossils date the rock layers, correct? Please notice, my arms never leave my shoulders. The exact same textbook, but on page 358, says exactly the opposite thing, that the rock layers date the fossils. Hello? What's the matter? That's not good enough for you? This is my second classical example, folks. Well, apparently you do need one more. Please notice, this is page 306, page 307 of the exact same biology textbook. Here in the fine print it says, the layers of rock can be dated by the types of fossils they contain. So right up here on page 306, it says you date the rock by the fossil, correct? On the very next page, 307, it says the following. Scientists have determined the relative time from the location of the fossils in sedimentary rock layers. So on the next page, it says that you, well, you date the fossil by the rock. But on the previous page, it says you date the rock by the fossil. But here it says date the fossil by the rock. But here it says you date the rock by the fossil. But here's the, hello? Oh. And uh, just to make my point even stronger, I would like to show you an article written for the American Journal of Science, highly respected publication, totally evolutionary publication. This is an evolutionary publication, 154% devoted to the teaching of evolution. And there was an article in there by a Dr. O'Rourke. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to compliment Dr. O'Rourke, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, Dr. O'Rourke is simply an honest evolutionist. Now, I think when they're honest, we, we need to, to congratulate them. I, I'm, I'm serious about that. And Dr. O'Rourke is just writing an honest article about this problem 
of dating rocks by fossils and fossils by rocks, okay? And, and again, I want to compliment. He's just being honest. In his article, he states, the intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. Now, please tell me, are you intelligent lay people? Excuse me? I said, I said are you intelligent lay people? Then you have long suspected this, correct? Right? Right? Well, he continues in his article, and he says, the evolutionary believing geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply, feeling the explanations are not worth the trouble as long as the work brings results. Oh, come on, folks. That's the same thing as the ends justify the means, isn't it? Oh. And again, he's just being honest about this. Um, Well, I want to introduce you to Dr. Derek Agar. Now, uh, this was published in New Scientist, so again, a totally evolutionary publication. Dr. Derek Agar is a preeminent British geologist, at one time a president of the Geological Society. This is a man with serious credentials, correct? And he is an evolutionist. But he wrote, and he said, and I quote, Ever since William, whose nickname was Strata Smith, at the beginning of the 19th century, Fossils have been and still are the best and most accurate method of dating and correlating the rocks in which they occur. So he says the fossils date the rocks, correct? Right? But he continues and he says, apart from very modern examples, which are really archaeology, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. Remember what I said? They don't use these supposed scientific methods because they know they don't work, correct? And here he is, the, a preeminent evolutionary geologist is saying that that's the case, correct? Well, let's go back to Dr. O'Rourke. We're going to go back to that first article. Dr. O'Rourke continues, and he writes, Radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. Excuse me, did you just hear what I just read? You couldn't even use these methods unless we had constructed the geologic column first. Is that correct? And again, they don't work, these methods. Well, okay, Dr. O'Rourke goes on, and if you don't love this one, I'm going to pack up and go home. Seriously. He went on in his article, and he wrote, and I quote, The rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately. (laughs) Oh, good, you like that one. I can stay. Uh, Can you believe he even wrote that? You, You kind of wonder at times whether they even read what they write, you know? Come on, the rocks do date the fossils, but the fossils date the rocks more accurately? Well, he continues on in his article, and he says this. Stratigraphy. Now, stratigraphy is the study of strata. That's layers in the ground. So stratigraphy is the study of the strata, the layers in the ground. Stratigraphy, the study of layers in the ground, cannot avoid this kind of reasoning, the circular reasoning, if it insists on using only temporal concepts because circularity is inherent in the derivation of time scales. Again, he's just being honest, right? Again, like I said, he's an honest evolutionist. And he continues and he says this, the charge of circular reasoning in the study of layers in the ground can be handled in several ways. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. O'Rourke is going to give us four ways in which you can get around the problem of dating rocks by fossils and fossils by rocks. And I think you'll find this very interesting. Really, I do. Uh, What is the first way in which you can get around the problem? Well, he says, number one, it can be ignored is not the proper concern of the public. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. Are you the public? Then it's none of your concern. Hello? 
right? Oh, well, number two. You might be interested in number two. Number two, it can be denied by calling down the law of evolution. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as the law of evolution. You understand that? This is a tongue-in-cheek expression. What he is saying is, dating rocks by fossils and fossils by rocks is not a problem because since evolution is true, what difference does it make? Hello? Oh, yeah. Now, number three. Personally, I think that number three is the single best of the four. Okay? I really do. Uh, I think, well, it's the most honest. Okay? It's the most honest. Because number three, he says, it can be admitted as a common practice that we date rocks by fossils and fossils. Now, wouldn't that just be the honest way of handling I mean, seriously, that's just the honest way of doing it, right? This is what we do. But, but I think number four is the most, most interesting of all because he says number four, or it can be avoided by pragmatic reasoning. Oh, come on, folks. How many of you would like to avoid problems in your life by pragmatic reasoning? For instance, um, April the 15th, they'll never miss the money. Hello? Or, or that cop didn't really mean to give me that speeding ticket, so I don't really need to send in the fine. Come on, that's avoiding problems by pragmatic reasoning, right? Oh. So don't you think that those four are kind of interesting? Well, let's go on. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's think about these layers we find in the ground. Now, again, we have a lot of oil, gas exploration, so forth. You certainly are familiar with the idea of layers in the ground. Now, think with me. Do we find limestone layers at the top? Do we find limestone layers in the middle? Do we find limestone layers at the bottom? Yes. Um, so let's think of this. How do you know that one limestone layer is older than another? After all, if I take a piece of limestone from the top, a piece of limestone from the bottom, I bring them over and I show them to you, um, and I say, what's the age of these? Which one's older? What's his response? He's going to say, are you kidding the first question he's going to ask me, if he's an evolutionary geologist, is, where did you find them? Because if I cannot tell him where I found them, he cannot tell me how old they are. Did you hear me? That is one of Dr. McMurtry's 101 great proofs. And, and I'm telling you right now, this is exactly what they do. If I bring him the rock and I cannot tell him where it came from, he cannot tell me how old it is. And, well, let me show you something here. Now, again... Uh, how do you know this is 100-million-year-old Jurassic limestone, but this is 600-million-year-old, uh, well, Cambrian limestone? How, how do you know? How do you tell the difference? How do you date them? Come on, folks. Now, it, it's been 20 minutes. You already know the right answer to this. How, how do you do it? By the fossils. Thank you very much. By the fossils. Now, uh, at least you were paying attention. Thank you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, let me show you now some of the fossils that have been used as index fossils. Now, would you agree with me, evolutionists say, in general, that's what I teach our children in school, that things supposedly get bigger, better, faster, smarter over time. Is that correct? Well, isn't that a teaching of evolution, that in general things get bigger, better, faster, smarter over time, correct? But let's see if that's really true. Let's take a look at what's really in the ground, okay? And let's take a look at some of the index fossils that have been used to date the layers in the ground. For example, this is actually, I know it might be a little hard to see, but this is actually the fossil of a tarantula. This is actually a fossil spider. This is a tarantula. Here's the body, and you can see the legs here, right? And here's a human hand. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, today I can hold a tarantula in my hand, right? But apparently in the old days, they could put my hand inside of them. Is that correct? Right? And how many of you have been driving around? You've seen storage, uh, you know, ponds and ditches and so forth with water. And you've seen ponds, you've seen drainage canals, and you've seen cattails growing in them. You've all seen cattails, right? But when was the last time you saw a cattail that was uh, 60 feet high? Hello? Never? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, by the way, I do find it interesting. As I drive, and I will be driving next month from Florida all the way to New England, it's interesting. You know, in Florida, they're six foot tall. You get to Maryland, they're five foot tall. You get to, to Maine, they're four foot tall. You know, they get shorter the farther north you go in the cold. Um, but I've never seen one 60 foot tall, have you? But we know from the fossil record that cattails used to grow 60 foot tall. So let's think. Are things, in fact, getting bigger, better, faster, smarter? Or when we take a look at the evidence, does it really look like things are getting smaller, slower, and dumber? Now, I realize that we are in Oklahoma, folks. Again, I have deep roots in this part of the country. But how many of you like seafood? Anybody here like to eat seafood or so forth? Anybody here like to eat oysters? Ah, I've got a couple of hands. Well, uh, for those of you who just raise your hand, that's a fossil oyster. Hello? Oh, now I got your attention. Now, think with me. We found over 500 fossil oysters, some of them up to 11 and a half foot across, weighing over 600 pounds, but where did we find them? We found them 13,000 feet above sea level, 250 miles southeast of Lima, Peru. Please notice that this was a dozen years ago, which apparently means that in the ancient time when you went to an oyster bar, they ate you. <laughs> and uh, now this is the actual fossil skull of a salamander. But the skull of that salamander indicates a salamander that would be six foot long. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when I see a six foot long salamander in my backyard in Orlando, we call them alligators. <laughs> and, uh, well, notice, never call, say that I'm not current, okay? Please notice this comes from 2011. A remarkable cache of marsupial remains have been found in Australia, including giant marsupial lions. 10-foot-tall kangaroos, and a wombat the size of a rhinoceros. Now, first of all, when you go to a zoo, maybe you go to Oklahoma City, you go to a zoo, when was the last time you saw a 10-foot-tall kangaroo? I mean, today the giant kangaroo is 5-foot-tall, correct? And if there were 10-foot kangaroos in the zoo down there, I think we'd need to build the fences a little higher, right? And we found a skeleton of a wombat, which is a form of marsupial, the size of a rhinoceros. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a marsupial today. That is a rhinoceros. Hello? So tell me, are things getting bigger, better, faster, smarter, or do they seem to be getting smaller, slower, and dumber? Yes, sir. That's it, right? Or how about this? Again, a giant fossil gander found in Australia. Now, would you agree a gander is a male goose, correct? Gander means male goose, right? And just like Gander Mountain. Hello? Come on, any sports fanatics here? Um, you know, I, I believe that there's enough room for wildlife and me in this world as long as it's next to my plate. And, uh, now, please notice that this is a dozen years ago. We found a giant fossil male goose. Uh, the problem is it would stand as tall as an elephant and would have weighed half a ton. 
they have been given a very special nickname called running birds. Now, why are they called running birds? Well, it's really quite simple. They have springing ligaments in their legs, just like horses do. And unlike ostriches and emus, they do not have webbed, clawed feet. They have horse-like hooves. So here is a goose. It is a bird. It's a goose. It stands as tall as an elephant, weighs a half a ton, runs around on two legs with springing ligaments like a horse, does not have webbed, clawed feet, but hooves like a horse. How y'all doing? Uh-huh. Um, now, this is the fossil jaw of a beaver found in Wisconsin. This is the skull of a fossil beaver found in Ohio. The thing is, uh, you may not realize what you're looking at because that jaw would indicate a beaver seven to eight foot long. The skull would indicate a beaver six foot long. Now, let's talk about uh, beavers. Now, today, beavers are two and a half foot long. Is that correct? But they used to be six to eight foot long. Now, let's think about just how big a tree could an eight foot long beaver cut down. I mean, I think you've got to agree. The redwoods are in trouble. Right? Or how about this? A donkey, a fossil donkey found near Lubbock, Texas. Now, we all are familiar with donkeys, right? Or if you prefer the Spanish word, burro. Come on, I grew up speaking Spanish in California. Donkey or burro, is that correct? Now I can put my hand on the shoulder of a burro today, is that correct? But we have actually found the, the fossil skeleton of a burro near Lubbock, Texas, that would stand at the shoulder nine foot high. When was the last time we saw a nine-foot-tall donkey? Hello? Or how many of you are familiar with uh, armadillos? Or maybe you're more familiar with wasadillos. You know, you're driving down the road, and there was a dillo, and there was a dillo. And... Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the body of a fossil armadillo. The head has already been removed. That's just the body. And look at the size of it. Now, this was found down in Peru back in 2005. But that is actually just the body of a fossil armadillo. Now, tell me, are things getting bigger, better, faster, smarter, or do they seem to be getting smaller, slower, and dumber? Hello? Exactly correct, young lady. And uh, this is a fossil sea turtle. It comes from the Yale Museum. It's 15 foot across. Now, I live in Florida. We're very famous for our sea turtles, and we are very protective of our sea turtles. But today, they are two and a half to three foot across. But they used to be 15 foot. Or, how many of you have seen a, uh, well, a giant elk? Anybody familiar with the giant elk? Um, well, do we have any deer hunters here? Anybody like to hunt deer around here? A couple of hands are going up. Great. Now, this deer has a rack that's 12 foot across. How'd you like to have that in the house? You'd, you'd be willing to build an extension for that one, wouldn't you? Yeah, I thought so too. Now, this is the giant Irish elk. And uh, the giant Irish elk actually became extinct not very long ago, really. And recently, we were able to go into a museum. We were actually able to extract the DNA from some samples of when these creatures went extinct. They didn't go extinct that long ago. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We found out. The giant Irish elk is not an elk. It's actually a species of red deer. But it has a rack 12 foot across. Uh-huh. Um, well, how many of you remember seeing an 18 foot tall rhinoceros when you went to the zoo? But this comes from the University of Nebraska collection. That's not very far from here. 
And, uh, well, let's think about it. 18 foot tall at the shoulder. So uh, let's think. Your ceiling here is only about 12 foot. Uh, <laughs> again, if we have this in a zoo, don't you think we need to build the walls a little taller? Yeah, me too. So, again, are things getting bigger, better, faster, smarter, or are they getting smaller, slower, and dumber? Well, over time, they're getting smaller, slower, and dumber. Is that correct? By the way, ladies and gentlemen, we now know genetically that we are losing 1% to 2% of our genetic information per generation. The human family is deteriorating fast. We are losing 1% to 2% of our genetic information per generation. The fact that you're even alive today is a miracle. Because think with me. You are the 200 to 250th copy since the original. Technically, you ought not to even exist. And the only reason you do exist is because there's a great creator God who puts some little tiny machines in your DNA that spend their entire day correcting the minor errors that are made in your DNA every day. And if it were not for those little machines that God had put there, you would not be alive today. And let's take a look. Now, here's a rock from New York State. You see these little black things inside the rock here? Those are actually fossils of a creature called a graptolite. A graptolite is a marine organism. It's a marine animal. And evolution say if you find fossil graptolites, it tells you that rock is 410 million years old. You with me? I know we're having just a little tantrum back there, but don't worry. He'll get over it. Um, so evolutionists tell you, if you find fossil graptolites in that rock, that rock is 400, you can count on it being 410 million years old, right? There's only one tiny little problem with that, which is that recently we found them alive in the South Pacific. <laughs> so how can you use them to date a rock as being 410 million years old? For all you know, they were fossilized yesterday. As a matter of fact, I proved three years ago that fossilization is a rapid process. And uh, please take a look. This is actually the teacher's edition of a biology textbook used in high schools down in Texas. And please notice that this was published in the year 2006, correct? So we're talking eight years ago, right? And in this teacher's edition, it shows you two drawings here and the geologic time scale over here. And what is being taught here? The story that's being taught here is the story of the very famous fish called the coelacanth fish. Anybody here remember the coelacanth fish when you were in school? Anybody remember talking about the coelacanth? You don't remember the name? Okay, how many of you remember the story? Do any of you remember this story? You may not remember the name, but do you remember the story? Evolutionists, up until, well, 80 years ago, taught the coelacanth fish. Now, this is a fish so ugly only a mother would love it. I'm serious. This is the drawing of a coelacanth over here, and it's not even a good drawing. Uh, but the coelacanth fish, it's an ugly fish. And it has these extra fins on the bottom that most fish don't have. And evolutionists said this fish evolved during the age of fishes, 360 to 410 million years old. And that's what it shows over here, the Devonian period of time. And they say that during that period, these fish evolved, and that 100 million years ago, these fish learn how to use these little extra fins on the bottom of their body like little, little tiny legs. And they crawled up on sandbars and mud banks. And this fish has an air bladder on the inside. And this air bladder had evolved into a lung. And this was the first creature to walk out of the water and become a human being. I'm serious. Now, now first of all, what is an air bladder? An air bladder means that this fish can intentionally 
increase or decrease the size of the air bladder so it changes its buoyancy and it goes up and down in the water like a submarine. Now, personally, I think that sounds like design. How about you? Pretty good design, right? But, but they were teaching that 100 million years ago, this fish had used these extra fins like little tiny legs, crawled up on sandbars and mud banks. The air bladder had evolved into a lung. It had learned how to breathe air, become the first land-dwelling creature, which eventually would lead to people. And, uh, of course, I would remind you of our little uh, uh, you know, Greek philosopher, Anaximander, who said the exact same thing 2,600 years ago. Is that correct? I'm telling you, evolutionists haven't changed their story. They just changed the words. Uh, and down here, what it illustrates is that this fish crawled out of the water and became amphibians. So this is the story of fish evolving into amphibians, the first creatures to walk on land, which then evolved into reptiles, mammals, and eventually people, correct? Now, they were teaching the story until 80 years ago, uh, but they stopped teaching it. What, what, what they said was this. The fish crawled out of the water 100 million years ago and became people, and that 70 million years ago, this fish had become extinct. That, that after it crawled up out of the water... The ones left in the water had finally become extinct. Um, the others had gone on land, become people, and uh, that there had not been a live coelacanth on Earth for 70 million years. Uh, but they stopped teaching that because we found them alive in December 1938 in the Indian Ocean. This is the Comoros Islands, just north of Madagascar. Uh, we found them alive in the Indian Ocean. Here's a picture of one in seawater with a, with a swimmer. And exactly 60 years later, in 1998, we found another population of them over near Indonesia, 5,000 miles away from the ones on the other side of the Indian Ocean. And so evolution said, well, number one, they're not extinct. <laughs> number two, they have never changed. They look exactly like fossils, which evolutionists claim are up to 410 million years old, no change. And therefore, obviously, they did not evolve into people, correct? Um, but, but they know the story is true. They just had the wrong fish. Okay? So December 1938, they stopped teaching about the coelacanth. Well, supposedly, because I was taught about it when I was in school. And believe me, I, I wasn't even born in 1938. Uh, and I've still seen the story taught in various textbooks around the world, even today. But they knew it wasn't true in 1938, Correct? But when they found out that it hadn't changed and so forth, well, they said, well, we know the story is true. We know fish walked out of the water and became people, but, but the coelacanth was the wrong fish. So they kept looking for the right fish that crawled out of the water to become people, right? 2006, April of 2006, Eureka, we have found it. Let me introduce you to the Tiktaalik rosier. Now, this is April of 2006. Now, what you see here is actually a photograph of a fossil find found on Ellesmere Island, north of the northwest Canada, uh, territories of Canada. Do, do you realize this is only 600 miles from true north? Come on, folks, that's really up there, right? And what you see here is the long, largest single specimen of a tiktaalik found. Um, but they said, oh, Eureka! 2000, finally, we have found the fish that walked out of the water and became people, right? Now, we found several specimens, but this was the largest specimen we had found so far. And notice what they say about this. And again, this is evolutionist writing, right? 375 million remains look like a cross between fish and crocodile. Why? Because the head is very flat. 
Now, you will agree, most fish have heads which are, you know, vertical, but some fish have heads that are horizontal, such as catfish, correct? Right? So this is not an unusual thing for fish to have a head like that, right? Uh, but they write here, scientists have caught a fossil fish in the act of adapting towards a life on land. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, I didn't know a fossil could adapt. Hello? Well, it goes on. A discovery that sheds new light on one of the greatest transformations in the history of animals. Quote, researchers have long known that fish evolved into the first creatures on land. No, evolutionists have long believed by faith. Is that correct? Oh. Um, with four legs and backbone more than 365 million years ago, but they've had precious little fossil evidence to document how it happened. How about none? Come on. They threw out the coelacanth in 1938. They've been looking at one. It's 2006, right? And finally, Eureka, we have found it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I told you before, if you don't remember, never, ever get your education from the infamous National Geographic. But this is from the National Geographic concerning the discovery that ticked to Lake Rosier. Now, here's a map of Ellesmere Island where it was found on the south end, but a map up here shows you it's on the very tip top of the Northwest Territories of Canada. It's really up there. And uh, now, here, here's a drawing from a staff uh, you know, artist with the National Geographic, trying to show what this fish might have looked like when it was alive based on the skeletal remains, right? Now, ladies and gentlemen, when I look at this drawing of this fish, supposedly what it would look like when it was alive, I actually have no real problem with this. I think that this is probably a fairly good representation of what it might have looked like, right? But I have a question for you. Please tell me how a different artist got that. Please notice... We never found the back end. We found the head, the front fins, the front half of the body. We never found the back end. How do you know it has a pointy tail? It could have a round tail. It could have three tails. How do you know? And what I'm trying to point out to you is, do not be deceived by artist renderings. Just because they can draw it doesn't make it real. Are you with me? Oh, and... Um, there was a very famous artist. His name was Andy Warhol. Uh, this is the guy who painted a Campbell soup can for him, sold it for a million dollars. He also painted one canvas, exactly one color of yellow, and sold it for a half a million. Uh, but he, <laughs> but he once said, he once said about fame being a fleeting thing. He says under every human being is given 15 minutes of fame, and he was talking about how fame is a fleeting thing, right? So the coelacanth. Well, it got knocked off the pedestal in 1938, right? So now we have the Tictalic Rosier. But fame is a fleeting thing. Under each is only given 15 minutes of fame. You see, in January of 2010 in Poland, we found the fossil footprints of a four-footed animal walking on land that's supposed to predate the Tictalic Rosier by 22 million years, according to evolutionists. So now we know it is not the Tictalic Rosier that walked out of the water that came people. Hello? But, but we know the story is true, so now we want your money to go out and keep looking for it until we find the right one. Hello? Some of you will remember the story. Follow the money. Well, that's what evolutionists do. They simply follow the money. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
Uh, you might have been taught that dinosaurs lived in the Cretaceous, Jurassic periods, as illustrated here, 65 to 200 million supposed years ago. But ladies and gentlemen, did you know? Did you know that in uh, 1992 we found blood, dinosaur blood cells in a T-Rex fossil? This was found by Dr. Mary Schweitzer. At that time, she was working for the University of Montana Northern Campus. Um, now, Dr. Mary Schweitzer is a very intelligent woman, uh, excellent scientist, unfortunately still an evolutionist, uh, admittedly. But in 1992, she found fossil dinosaur blood cells. Here's a photograph of them right here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is impossible for this stuff to be 68 million years old. Uh, but, nonetheless, evolutionists believe that these T-Rexes died 68 million years ago, right? And she finds dinosaur blood cells in this fossil T-Rex, right? Now, this is a discovery that absolutely proves that evolutionary time is not true. It is impossible for red blood cells to last this long in the ground. You with me? So what she found absolutely contradicts evolution, correct? Now, the, the University of Montana Northern Campus wanted to reward her for this incredible find, and so they fired her. Hello? Yeah, they fired her. But she's a very intelligent, highly resourceful woman. She used this as an opportunity to get kicked upstairs because, you see, she went out and found a better job at a bigger, better university. Today she works for the University of North Carolina uh, State, North Carolina State, um, has a lab of her own and so forth. She's still doing research. And, uh, well, that was 1992. Now, She's working at North Carolina State University, but she likes to dig up T-Rexes. And you can only dig up T-Rexes in Montana. So, so what happened? Well, back in 2005, she's gone back to Montana. She's working with some of her previous colleagues, digging up T-Rexes, and she finds this. Dinosaur flesh. Ladies and gentlemen, that is real dinosaur flesh. When it was found, it was still soft. You could squeeze the blood out of it. The find has been confirmed even by Harvard University, which is a totally evolutionary institution, but even they agree it is real dinosaur flesh. But here you actually see various things, including that little bone right there, which proves that this is a female T-Rex who was about to lay her eggs. Um, but this is in 2005. Uh, well, that's kind of interesting. It is impossible for this flesh to exist in the ground for 68 million years. Remember that even if you can preserve something, and, and how many of you have ever canned or jarred preserves and so forth, right? You can pasteurize it, right? You can put it in a jar. You can kill all the living organisms in it, set it up on a shelf. But you know as well as I do, even if there's no bacteria in there, even though there's no rot, what happens? How many of you have ever seen a glass with with fruits like peaches or something, left in a jar and not used the next year, but were left there for 10 or 15 or 20 years and never opened. When you look through the glass, it's simply disintegrating in front of your eyes. Isn't that right? Because molecular bonds break down spontaneously even when there's no bacterial action. It is impossible for this flesh to be 68 million years old because all the molecular bonds that have already broken down over time and you wouldn't be able to recognize it. Are you with me? Since this time, we have now found flesh in five different dinosaurs on three different continents. And evolutionists are saying, well, you know what? 
there must be some mechanism which by faith would allow this to be preserved for 68 million years because they simply refuse to change their paradigm. It doesn't matter what you show them that this is only 4,350 years old, they're still never going to give up 68 million. Is that right? Now, ladies and gentlemen, some other finds. Supposedly 18-million-year-old magnolia leaves from Idaho shale are still green when you open up the rock. The Idaho shale is very, very thin. It's paper thin. And it's very famous for the leaves trapped in between these very thin layers. And when you pull back a layer for the first time, the leaf is still green. It still has chlorophyll. Now, it turns black in a matter of hours as it oxidizes very quickly. It's very fragile. But initially, it's still green. Now, I have a real problem believing that chlorophyll could last in the ground for 18 million years. Or uh, fossil bees. Now, this comes from the Dominican Republic. I've done missionary work in the Dominican Republic twice. Uh, according to evolutionary scientists, there are five different amber deposits in the Dominican. And supposedly, the amber is 25 to 14 million years old. Uh, however, we have found fossil bees trapped inside this amber, and when we opened them up, there were bacteria inside that were still alive. And I have something that I'd like to share with you that comes from uh, my work in Russia. There are some very good scientists in Russia, and some of them do believe in creation, by the way. Uh, I work with them. And, uh, but Russian scientists have proven back in 2009 that amber forms underwater. Now that speaks of a flood all over the world, doesn't it? But we still have live bacteria contained in the stomachs of these fossil bees that are supposed to be 25 to 40 million years old. Now, bacteria can go into a state of suspended animation for a period of time, but it is impossible for them to go into a state of suspended animation for 25 to 40 million years. It simply isn't possible, proving that those bees are not 25 to 40 million years old. And recently in, in France, we found mammal hair trapped inside of amber, which according to evolutionists is supposed to be 100 million years old. But according to evolutionists, there were no mammals 100 million years ago. Oh. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're almost finished. Uh, this is my favorite kind of fossil. It's called a polystrate fossil. Now, what does the word polystrate mean? Well, the word poly means many, obviously. Straight, strata, stratum refers to layers, right? So the word polystrate refers to any fossil, a plant, tree trunk, root, or bone that penetrates through two or more layers, right? Polystrate, two or more layers. Now, this is a fossil tree trunk from Germany. The tree trunk is 21 foot long, but I think you'll agree you can see layers going across here, right? Now, this tree trunk has no roots, no tops. I'd like to ask all of you to have a little think question. How many of you believe that this tree could grow here without tops or bottoms for millions of years with those layers formed around it? Excuse me? Oh. Now, I actually have an entire presentation about polystrate fossils because they're my favorite kind of fossil. We find them all over the world. Um, this is from Joggins, Nova Scotia. This is up near the Bay of Fundy. Uh, you see the child here with the hand. That is a fossil tree trunk sticking out of the ground right there. Now, at Joggins, Nova uh, Nova Scotia, there is a layer of sedimentary material 2,500 foot deep. That's a half a mile, correct? According to evolutionists, this half a mile of material represents many different geological time zones, many different layers in the chart, correct? 
but all of those layers are penetrated with polystrate tree trunks, polystrate roots, not one tree going 2,500 feet. But there's a tree trunk here and a root there and another tree trunk here and a root there. And it puts the entire 2,500 feet into one deposit. But according to evolutionists, it represents 20 different geological time zones. How y'all doing? And uh, this is a beautifully preserved mother ichthyosaur. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what an ichthyosaur is, it's a reptile that looks like a fish. It is a reptile. It breathes air. It, it lives a life similar to a porpoise, a dolphin, a whale. It has to breathe air coming to the surface, right? But the body is shaped like a fish, and it has fins, even though it is a reptile, right? But please notice this beautifully preserved mother ichthyosaur, and let's ask ourselves a question. Is fossilization a rapid or a slow process? Now, evolution said it takes millions and millions of years to get a fossil, correct? But did you happen to notice that this beautifully preserved mother ichthyosaur, well, she died and was fossilized in the process of giving birth. This is her baby coming out of the birth canal right here. So in the process of giving birth, she was buried alive. She and her baby were fossilized. So is fossilization a rapid or slow process? Oh, it's rapid. And then I have a fossil I showed you three years ago if you were here. Uh, but tonight I'd like to show you just one more time because I really like this one. It's not my favorite fossil, but it's about number four or five. Um, tonight I'd like to introduce you to the limestone cowboy. Now, this cowboy died, we know, between 1950 and 1951. We actually found his body in 1980. In less than 30 years, his body had fossilized. So is fossilization a rapid or a slow process? Oh, it's a rapid process. Is that correct? Well, ladies and gentlemen, these layers in the ground, are these really 100, 200, 300, 400 million years old? Can all of you say, not a chance? When you take a look at what's really in the ground, it contradicts what evolutionists teach. Is that correct? The layers are not in the order shown in the textbooks. We have contradictions such as polystrate fossils, a tremendous argument against slow and gradual accumulation. Rapid fossilization. If you come to understand what occurs in fossilization, you know it has to be rapid. It could not possibly be slow. And so when we take a look at what's really in the ground versus what's in the textbooks, it's two very different things. Is that correct? It simply shows that they're lying to our children. They're using our tax dollars to lie to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Is that correct? Oh, I hope you get mad about that personally. Righteously. Righteously, right? You can be righteously angry, but sin not, correct? Well, you need to get righteously angry, and I hope you will. Thanks, sir. Wow. Okay, how many of you are on brain overload? How many of you will admit you're on brain overload? You're like, okay, could I do some more of that? Um, we passed out earlier. If you didn't get a white card tonight, we just want to give you one. Is anybody, did you get a white card? Our goal is to be able to have you write down questions that you have. I, I've got a question written on mine, so don't look at it. That way when he reads it tomorrow or whatever, you'll, you'll know what that is. But if there's some questions that you have on really anything, Grady says he was willing to open it up, anything even within the Word of God, um, scientifically. Um, if you've got some questions on some Scripture, um, let's do what, baby? 
Oh, no end times, right. You say he's going to stay away from that. Um, so so I, my goal would be to have you write down what you what questions that you would have. And um, and we like to be able to, to have you pass it in. So does anybody need a pen? Because I'm going to really struggle with others around you. If you guys, has anybody got around these people got a pen they can give them? Because um, if not, I've got definitely we can get some pens and we'll get them to you. But some of you ladies open up those those purses. Did I say that right? Purse or pocketbook? Purse. And grab a pen for them. Um, tonight, wow. Tonight, I'm just like... <laughs> so i got to kind of sift through this. I want to encourage you guys that sometimes, you know, the information comes so fast that you may need to slow it down. I tell everybody that, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a DOS processor here. Shelly's is like a Pentium quadruple or something, whatever they are. And she's a multitasker, and I'm just like, let me just finish this one task, then I'll go to the next task. So uh, my process is a little slow. So in order for that to happen, I've got I've to get it, listen to it, think about it, let it permeate my being. But then when I do get it, I got it. Okay? So some people might have fast processors, and they may think they got it, and they, and they don't have it. But when I get it, I got it. And I can move through it. So real quick, I want to do two things tonight. Is I want to just have you fill out that right there. And I'm going to ask you guys, if you want to, if you want to sow a seed, um, our goal is to be able to help Grady. And I'm going to have the ushers come. And I want to be one of the first ones to be able to give. But they're just going to take a, a basket and pass it. If, if It's up to you. You, you. you guys ask the Lord what it is you would give tonight. And if you do want to give, we want you to give. We want you to sow in and connect with this ministry. Then just write a check to Living Word Fellowship if you want to. Uh, put in cash. If you need an envelope, the ushers will give you an envelope. But let me, um, I know we, we catch everybody off guard sometimes doing that. Oh, and uh, when they pass the basket, if you have a question, put that in there also. And we, yeah, you guys can bring, the, bring them tomorrow. Take that home with you, and you're welcome to bring it back in tomorrow. And we would definitely love to have it. But bring it in a little bit earlier because what we want to do is give it to Grady and at least let him have the opportunity to read it, you know, um, make sure that there's any questions to it. So how many of you enjoyed tonight? You enjoy tonight? Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We enjoyed tonight. Now, tomorrow night's going to be Q&A. So uh, think about it tonight. I believe that the Lord will give you dreams and visions and questions to ask. And tomorrow you'll be able to come in and ask some things. So if you will, just stand to your feet. I do want to pray a blessing over you guys tonight as you leave and as you dream about all this information um, that, that really we can begin to really scientifically see that, um, that I, I, my, my heart would be creationism would be taught in our schools. Uh, you know, they can say, well, we're going to teach this, but I'm saying, hey, if that's what you're going to teach, then how about if we bring something in that can give them really the opportunity to explore it themselves. Um, put your hand on your heart tonight. Father, we just thank you for, wow, what an overload of this information that you've just released on us tonight that we do have to really realize and question some things. And I know even the textbooks, we read through them sometimes, and we, we just skip over what we don't understand. And, Lord, even he showed us tonight how as we look at it, and we can begin to look at it and process it and truly read it, that we can really catch those fallacies that are in there, the contradictions. 
So, Father, give us wisdom as we move forward through this. I pray for Grady. I thank you that he's taught for a couple hours, that you continue to bless and strengthen him physically, mentally, and emotionally tonight. Father, I thank you for these that are here, that they'll go maybe and invite somebody else to come back tomorrow night in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Hey, God bless you. He's got resources back there. You really need to take a look at that. There's really coloring books for kids that will also teach it. So you guys take a look at his resource table tonight and, uh, and get some things that you'd like to learn about.